Uh, Let's read verses 13 to 21 together. You'll find it in your bulletin, page 7. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through whom are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I'm just reminded of a passage in Mark 9 where you... Uh, you, you tried, you, you, you healed uh, a man with an unclean spirit and your disciples had tried beforehand and they were unable to. They came to you and said, well, why couldn't we cast out this man with an unclean spirit? And Lord, you said uh, that some things are only possible through prayer. And so Lord, I, I, we recognize even now Lord, that what's going to change us is not, um, is not the, the, the attention to which we give the sermon. What's not going to change us is the preparation that I did this week. What's going to change us is, uh, is your spirit. And Lord, we call on your spirit to unite with your word and make us new people. Breathe new life into us. Do this for your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Um, if you uh, if you've been aware, you'll you'll see that there's um, there's Christmas decorations going up downtown. Uh, it's uh, November the sixth, and uh, they've been up for every bit of a week. And some people have got a real strong opinion about when you're supposed to put up Christmas decorations. Um, I, I was with someone last night, and they said they started decorating their house yesterday. Um, so it's not just commercialism. You know, you can blame uh, the stores all you want for putting out stuff early, but what about when you do it in your own house on November the 5th? Um, I saw Christmas displays in the stores as early as October 1st. 94.5's already started their 24-7 Christmas gig. And this really grates against some people because some people think that you've got to wait till, you've got to wait till Thanksgiving. Uh, you, you, you've got to wait till December 1st. But whatever your opinion is on when you're supposed to start Christmas decorating or or celebrating Christmas, you have to admit it's never a bad time to watch the Elf. Um, (laughs) The Elf is a a Wim Hof family staple. It it, it, uh, features Will Ferrell, which is hilarious because he's six, at least Google says he's six foot three. And I promise you, being six foot five, he definitely weighs more than 200 pounds. Um, So it's hilarious that, that there's a six foot three, 200 plus person playing an Elf. Um, and how the story goes is that when Buddy is a child, uh, he sneaks into Santa's bag and he's carried uh, back to the North Pole on accident. And he's raised by elves, which, again, is hilarious. Um, and early in the movie, he finds out that he's actually not an elf. He's actually the son of Walter Hobbs and Susan Wells. And he's shocked 
because the elves have cared for him so long and so well that he considers them to be his family, even though they naturally have so little in common. So for all practical purposes, Buddy has been adopted by elves. And whenever we see or experience adoption, it really touches us. It really touches even when it's played by Will Ferrell. It strikes a chord in the human heart because adoption it involves, it involves people and relationships and sacrifice. Uh, this week I, I read a story uh, of a husband and wife that they had tried uh, to, to, to have a child for 15 years but were unable to. And so they received a lead on a, a newborn who was going to be given up for adoption. And so now they're standing before the judge after this really long, painful 15 years of wanting to receive a child into their home. And they stand before this judge and this judge points his finger at the parents and asks, has anyone coerced you to adopt this little boy? Interesting question. Has anyone coerced you into adopting this little boy? And they told the judge that nothing had coerced them other than love that was, adop- that was motivating them to adopt this little boy. And then the judge makes this statement. He says, from today on, he is your son. He may disappoint you, even grieve you, but he is your son. Everything you own one day will be his and he will bear your name. Then he looked at the clerk, uh, the judge did, looked at the clerk and he gave this command, I so order a change in this child's birth certificate and may it reflect that these are the parents of this child. Powerful, isn't it? Stories like these, they really get to us and the reason they really get to us is because adoption is at the very core of what the gospel is all about. God is our father. Jesus is his son and our brother. The church is the family of God where we are brothers and sisters in Christ through adoption. So the Bible is chock full of familial language. And our passage tonight, 1 Peter 13 through 21, includes a ton of family language. And I think what we'll discover in this passage is that, um, that adoption is very costly. Both for the one who's being adopted and for the ones doing the adopting. That's why we get the sermon title, A Costly Grace Leads to a Costly Life. So we'll do costly life is point one, and costly grace is point two. Um, so the, the, the costly life. This, uh, this adopted status that we now have as sons and daughters of God, um, it has a dramatic impact on our lives. Dramatic. And though it costs absolutely nothing to be adopted, the one adopted has to acclimate to this whole new way of living. And this new way of living for us and the family of God is better than living in our former environment. But it's new and it's unnatural. It's as new and unnatural for us as it is for Buddy to be an elf. But those who are adopted, they don't have the DNA of those who've adopted them. So there involves this, this period of, of adjustment. And so as sons and daughters, adopted sons and daughters, this new way of living is, is holiness. And it's patterned after our father. Because our father, verse 16, is holy. So if, if our father who has adopted us is, is holy, we too must learn his ways as his sons and daughters. And this word holy, again, this is like sanctification. We don't use this a lot unless we're cussing a lot, um, this word holy. But 
many theologians and biblical scholars say if you had to d describe God in one word, what would it be? Many would boil it down to just that God is holy. And what holiness really means is that God is set apart. He's, he's different. There, there, there's so much about him that makes him distinctive from us. So take all his other characteristics and you just put holiness in front of us. How is his love different than ours? It's holy love. How is his power different than ours? It's holy power. How is his knowledge different than ours? It's holy knowledge. So he's altogether different than us. So it should be no surprise that he's calling us to be holy too. He's calling us to be set apart. And this is our distinctiveness that we're found as exiles. If you've been with us the last several weeks, you've, you, you, you'll see at the beginning of 1 Peter, you'll see that, that, that we're called exiles. What does it look like when you are the minority culture in a majority culture? When you're in exile? See, as, as, as adopted children of God, we don't think, we don't feel, and we don't act like those around us. That's holiness. And this distinctiveness, it's brought out. It's brought out by our new status as being adopted. You see it in verse 13, where, where Peter says that we're obedient children. He doesn't call us obedient Christians or obedient believers. He calls us obedient children. And then you see that God is called Father, both in verse 16 and verse 17. And I think what we'll see is that it's going to take, this, this costly living is going to take thinking differently, feeling differently, and acting differently. It's not just learning this new behavior, but it's holistic. And it's not going to leave any part of our lives untouched. And what's called for, the, 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 this distinctive living, he calls it in verse 14, he calls it obedience, and he calls it holiness in verse 16. So what does obedience look like? What does holiness look like? Well, it looks like this thinking, this feeling, and this acting, behaving. So let's look at those, those, each of those three things. This costly living is going to be first thinking differently. Look at verse 13. Uh, verse 13, the very first thing, he says, preparing your minds for action. And then it says, and being sober-minded. He doesn't use the language of heart. He doesn't use the language of behavior here, but he, he uses our minds. And then he says right there in that, in, in that first phrase that, that, that there's this direct link between our minds and our actions. So, but we don't prepare our minds just for the sake of increasing our knowledge. We're meant to do something with what we know. And if, if you've been around Christianity, you'll see that the life of the mind is a very important topic for Christians. That's why through the history of the church, we've taken education so seriously. It's because the life of the mind matters. The mind is what processes the truths that are revealed in Scripture. And many of these truths are going to require much intellectual energy to come to a place of understanding. But oftentimes we see that learning theology or learning more about the Bible is an end in itself. Whoever's best at Bible trivia is the most mature Christian. And I've heard lots of people equate Christian maturity by how much we know. Some of us, we feel like utter failures because we don't know much. And other of us feel really superior because we know a lot about the Bible. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1, he says, We know that all of us possess knowledge, but this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. 
So Paul's saying that knowledge builds up, that knowledge puffs up. What he said is, is that it makes us arrogant. And if the knowledge that you have has made you arrogant about what you know about the Bible, what you know about Christianity, it's time to repent. And this is, it is, it is, but this isn't just a problem with all knowledge. It's, it, it, this, is, this is a problem that's true with all knowledge. Think about um, some of the smartest people I know or some of the most arrogant people I know. People get in fights in a hurry about what they know. Do sports trivia. Uh, you do sports trivia with people and people are going to get fired up about what they know. They'll go to Google in a hurry to justify themselves. But what we must be really careful of is, as we critique this big-headed Christian view is to demean all theological learning. See, when our learning, when it's done with humility, when it's done with a sober mind, verse 13, then it can lead to maturity. So we should, as believers, we should long to learn more about the Bible and use our brains, even if we aren't naturally an intellectually curious person. Why? Because when we learn in humility, it leads to action. Let me give you some examples. Uh, one is our finances. Uh, Jesus, um, he had so much to say about money. And if, if we were to put ourselves under the teaching of Jesus, under what he says about money, then we can better use our money and our possessions that he gives us. It actually makes a difference. Look, think about sexuality. Uh, the Song of Solomon is a book in the Bible that, that's dedicated to celebrate sex. In fact, it's written in, in no prudish terms whatsoever. And if you read Song of Solomon, and you know that's the point of Song of Solomon, it'll make you blush, even if you're sitting by yourself. So while the Bible celebrates sex, it, it also places limits on how sex is to be enjoyed. But how do you know those limits? You see them in the scriptures. You must learn them. So we would be better served if we learned what the Bible says about sex. Lastly, creation. Um, the, the, the Bible claims that God made us and all things. So it gives nature a great bit of dignity. But the Bible also says that we should not, that the natural world, even though it's beautiful and it's made by God, we're not to worship it. So how do you know if you're worshiping it or you're just enjoying it? You, we look to the scriptures. We look to the resources of Christian theology. And it will equip us to know the difference. So we would all do well as we seek to grow in the gospels. We seek to grow in holiness. To use our minds to think through these tough issues and use the scriptures as our guide. So it's going to cause us to think differently. That's what holiness and obedience is going to do. Secondly, it's going to make us feel different. Look at verse 14. It says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So it's not just what we think. It's not just what we know about the Bible and Christian theology that's going to equip us for holiness. It's also going to be our emotions are going to be involved in this process. And each of our emotions, even what we consider to be negative emotions, think back to what, where we were at this summer with the Psalms. This, all of our, even our negative emotions, they can be toxic, but they can also be redemptive. And all of them are to be brought under the lordship of Jesus. And Peter is showing us right here in verse 14 the, 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 the key role that our passions have in our lives. He says our passions conform our lives. 
So our actions will take the mold of our, pa- uh, uh, our our actions will take the mold of our passions every single time. This is true of all fandom, but it's true in our love of people, and it's our true of our love of things too. So if you love something, it's going to be really obvious by your conduct. But have you ever tried controlling what you love? I would love to give up my love of night eating. I would love to give up my love for the Cincinnati Bengals. And it's just, but it's just not as simple as putting a lid on these emotions. And I think what our text is trying to keep us from doing is making two mistakes. One is making our passions to defining our holiness totally by how we feel. And the other is to, to, to exclude passions altogether. See, some of us, we're feelers. And whatever we feel, that's what's true. We're impulsive. And so what, what we tend to do is we baptize the way we feel when, we're con- when confronted. But what Peter is telling us very clear is that our passions can come from a place of former ignorance. But others of us, we, we ignore our feelings as a part of holiness, and we, we opt for learning about the Bible, just using our minds, and we opt for managing our behavior. Why do we do this? Why, why, why do we totally cut out emotions as a, as a part of our sanctification, our growth as Christians? Because learning, learning new stuff and managing your behavior is so much easier to control and so much easier to, to, to evaluate, so much easier to measure. But what holiness is going to do, it's going to call for us to take our emotions seriously, but to understand that we are so much more than what we feel. So what's holiness look like? What's it going to cost us? It's going to cost us what we think. It's going to cost us what we feel. And lastly, it's going to, it's good, it is going to change our behavior. Look at verse 15. It says, be holy in all your conduct. And in verse 17, it says, according to each one's deeds. It doesn't say that God's going to judge us according to our thoughts or according to our feelings, but it's going to be according to our deeds. Isn't that really weighty? Uh, doesn't that feel extremely intrusive? That the scope of our holiness can't just be relegated into this corner of, of our religious lives. But it's going to be all of our conduct, verse 15. And then, according to verse 17, none of it's going to go unnoticed. For our Father judges according to each one's deeds. Now, you might be saying, um, Marshall, you, you, you must say that that God's actually, he, he's not just watching my religious experience, but also my non-religious behavior. You're also saying that he's just as aware of what happens in this hour and 15 minutes of church and the other 166 and three quarter hours of my week. Yes. He knows it. And he's calling for your holiness. But you might say, well, Marshall, I've been, I really like this church. You all use these words grace and love and mercy all the time. How can you all of a sudden become so heavy-handed? Well, it's true that in our tradition of Christianity, we do emphasize the grace and the mercy and the love of God. We really do believe that our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. We don't become Christians by living right or thinking right or feeling right. Our good works don't save us. So yes, this is grace and this is love and this is mercy. But here's the role that our conduct plays. Let me put it as, as one theologian says. He says, after man has been justified by faith, 
then a true living faith works by love so that good works always follow justifying faith and are surely found with it if it be true and living. For saving faith is never alone, but always has with it love and hope. So our holy conduct, you see it here, our holy conduct is the fruit of our, of our justification, of our being right, made right with God, but it is not the root. Our, our adopted status as sons and daughters of God, it calls us to be holy in all of our conduct because our Father himself is holy. It's the fruit, it's not the root. So do you see what it's going to cost us? There's nothing that goes untouched by what God calls for in our living. We're to be holy in all we do. We're to be judged according to each one's deeds. It has a great cost. Now, if we just left you there, this is why we didn't stop at verse 17 tonight. <laughs> this is why we're doing 18 to 21. It's so that, so that you're wooed and so that you're motivated to, do, to, to obey what Peter's just laid out. And you'll see in 18 to 21, you'll see a costly grace. So you see all these imperatives to be holy in verses 13 to 17. But they're sandwiched. They're sandwiched between 1 to 12. If, if you've been with us for 1 to 12, it's just been what God has done, His grace, what God has done, His grace, what God has done, His grace, over and over and over again. We get into 18 to 21. Here it comes again. It's all about what God has done. And then you've got these five little verses right here sandwiched between 4 on one end and 12 on the front end, 4 on the back end, 12 on the front end, where it calls us to do something. And this holiness is being commanded. It's based on what God has done for us. And it precedes the command of what we're called to do for him. But without the indicative of what God does for us, the imperatives that we saw in verses 13 to 17, who they're addressed to are helpless sinners. They're addressed to victims, us as victims of our own illusions of what we can actually pull off. So what verses 13 to 17, what it actually does when you separate it from verses 1 to 12 and 18 to 21, it becomes a commandment that really crushes us. But Peter doesn't crush us. He motivates us. He woos us toward this costly obedience by showing us a Savior who loved us at such a great cost to himself. And the currency that he used to purchase us was the precious, his precious blood. This great price that Jesus paid for our salvation, it says a lot about us. It, says, it shows us how depraved we are on one hand, what we're redeemed from, and it shows us that we're worth it, that we're, we have an exceedingly great worth. So let's look at both, our depravity and our worth. So look at the depravity. Look, at, um, look there in verse 18. Look what, we're, look what we're redeemed from. Look what we're ransomed from. We're, we're ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. All right, this is, this, is, this, is, uh, this is really key. Because what we're redeemed from actually matters. Uh, what Peter is, is not saying is that, that we're, we're, not saved, we're not redeemed from sin and guilt. We're not redeemed from the majority culture of the world. What he wants to emphasize is that we're redeemed from, from, our, from our former life. And the loves of our former life, now they have to be made subservient to our new positions as sons and daughters of God. So our love of money, 
must be put in alignment with the priorities of our Heavenly Father. We no longer use money to purchase our pleasure. We no longer use money to to purchase our security. We realize that we're not owners anymore, but we're stewards. See, that's a futile way of living before we come to Christ, is that we use money for those ends. Maybe money's not your thing. Maybe, maybe your former way of life was way more defined by people's opinions of you. And if that's the way you're living your life, you're going to be exhausted. It's complete folly to live our lives managing others' impressions in order for our life to have real meaning and purpose. Because now, we're no longer, this is a futile way of living. We're no longer, we're no longer letting other people's opinions dictate who, who we think we are, but we're enveloped in our new status as a son and daughter of God. Now, this isn't to say that our futile ways before we're adopted by our Heavenly Father, that there's this really clean break and we never sin no more, that we never do anything that's stupid. We never have, a, a, we never have an, an erroneous thought, that we never have a, a stray feeling, that we never have a misdirected, a misdirected action. That's not what it's saying. But there's a new disposition towards our former loves. There's a new disposition to the futile ways that, that, that we were saved from. There's a changed attitude. There will always be these lingering loves that characterize our former lives before Christ. But Jesus' blood was so costly, and it was used to redeem you from these former ways. Let me ask you the question, what was your life like before you became a Christian? Maybe you don't remember because you've kind of always been around the Christian story, been around the church most of your life. And if that's you, let me ask this question differently. Not what, what was your life like before you met Christ, but what was life like during a, a season where Jesus wasn't so sweet to your soul? What was life like when you avoided his rule and his reign in your life? Well, I'd venture to guess that you would describe that season or as your life before Christ is empty, as vain, as frivolous. Brother, sister, let me tell you, you've been redeemed from that. You don't have to wait until heaven to taste heaven now. You, you really can reject the vanity offered in the idols of sex and reputation and power and accomplishment and family and grasp the firm hope offered in the resurrection of Jesus. It cost him his precious blood that he's redeemed you from your former way of life. That's the desperate state we were in. It was futile. But Jesus' costly life doesn't just tell us about um, our depravity. It also tells us about our worth. Look how much we're valued. We're not bought with perishable things such as silver or gold. It's going it's to take something far, far greater. The currency is going to have to be worth so much more than, than, than money in order to, to, to redeem us and make us children of God. But it's easy to think that money is what makes the world go round. But when you're God, money is no thing because he owns everything. What's valuable to him is his one and only son. And he sacrificed him in order to have you. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 says that Jesus was made manifest in the last time. And then he throws this big one at the end. For the sake of you. It's hard to believe, isn't it? 
Because if you're like me, you think that God adopted you just because he felt sorry for you. He felt sorry for your lowly condition, but he doesn't really delight in you. Maybe God's like Oliver Warbucks. You know who Oliver Warbucks is? Oliver Warbucks uh, was this rich billionaire in Annie. And Annie is an orphan, and uh, he feels sorry for Annie. He feels sorry for her orphaned plight. So what he does is he adopts her. See, that's what we usually think about when we think that God adopted us. He just saw how bad off we were, and he said, oh, come on in, I got plenty of room. I got plenty of resources to take care of you. But that's not the way it was. Because if God only pitied us, and that's as far as his heart could be moved, why would he give up the thing that was most precious to him? Friend, you are so highly regarded by God that he foreknew before the foundation of the world that he would reveal Jesus to you and raise him him from the dead for the sake of you. His plan was not haphazard, but it was determined and he executed it. And when you realize that this was for the sake of you, it changes everything. This is grace, friend. Jesus, your brother, was perfectly holy and he became sin so that you might be an adopted child of God and know God as Father. And now your Father, who is holy, is calling you out of gratitude for what he's done to endeavor to be holy in all that you do. Doesn't that change obedience for you? You don't obey so that God will love you. You obey, and your holiness comes because you know he already does. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you don't just pity us, but you actually delight in us. Oh, Lord, I I, I pray. Um, I pray for those of us who are beat up uh, by our own sinful hearts by what we've experienced in our past. It makes that it makes that's really hard to believe. We've never been delighted in it, to any measure, let alone and definitely not by the measure that you delight in us. But Lord, help us to believe that to be true. Lord, I pray that we would bask in your love for us, and Lord, that we would obey uh, because we know you, that we because we, we trust you because you've adopted us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.